Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week. We celebrate having passed a major benchmark in the lawsuit of the USS Ronald Reagan sailors against Tokyo Electric Power Company. This will be the subject of my interview with both attorneys in the case. Hear what Paul Garner and Charles Bonner have to say about the issues of the case, how they viewed the judge's actions in the courtroom during the hearings, how they reacted when they got the good news, and what's next. On behalf of the Reagans' 5,500 sailors, as well as all U.S. military personnel who responded after the March 11, 2011 earthquake, tsunami, and the start of the nuclear disaster at Fukushima, that interview plus numbnuts of the week, activist shoutout, the John Stewart Twitter campaign, which is about to be extended to John Oliver, and more nuclear information than will fit on the head of a pin. All coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November fourth, twenty fourteen, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Upsetting information out of Japan about the way that doctors are being gagged when they try to tell their patients that the problems they are having with their health are related to radiation and Fukushima. This from Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. He said. We continue to get information from people who live there about cancer rates and illnesses in general, not just cancer. Much higher incidence of a whole range of illnesses than they had in 2010, the year before the accident. We're also working with doctors in Japan, and some brave doctors are saying that they've been threatened, that their hospital rights have been threatened. If you tell your patient this illness is radiation related, you'll lose your right to practice. So there's enormous pressure on the medical community to tell the patients that what they're experiencing is not at all related to radiation. The key is statistics, and the question is when will the statistics be released for mortality, morbidity, and general illnesses? We are not seeing the data. He continues, the medical community now has to file every report that it writes with the IAEA. The International Atomic Energy Agency, that has as part of its charter the promotion of nuclear power. So, if you're a hospital and you've got mortality data, you're not allowed to issue that to the public until those reports have been cleared by the IAEA. It's truly frightening. Next week, all things being equal, Nuclear Hot Seat will have an interview with Arnie Gunderson. A warning that the next item is obscene. The operator of Fukushima posted a solid first-half pre-tax profit last Friday, 
Halloween, October 31st. Despite not restarting any of its idled reactors or hiking electricity rates, TEPCO, which was effectively nationalized in the wake of the Fukushima Daiichi crisis, said that it chalked up a group pre-tax profit of 242.8 billion yen, or 2.23 billion dollars American, in the April to September half fiscal year. Up 71.4 percent from the year earlier, it attributed the solid result to postponed construction of power plants and cuts in manpower and material costs. Well, let's just see what TEPCO is earning its money on, shall we? TEPCO has set in-house standards for compensation that require evacuees who have moved out of evacuation zones to attend university or college to repay some of the compensation they have already received. This, according to a TEPCO document obtained by the Manichi Shimbun, it says that if a tenant agreement between an evacuee and a landlord, including a college dormitory, had been signed before the outbreak of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. In March of 2011, it is considered that the decision to move was made before the disaster, and that the evacuation was over after they moved into the new place. Under this TEPCO standard, all evacuees who moved out of evacuation zones to enter university or college, regardless of the location of the institutions, will be subject to TEPCO's demand for repayment. The Prefectural Education Board said there were some 1,000 students in off-limit zones who graduated from high school in the spring of 2011. So dig it, you've made plans for your future, and then the earthquake, tsunami, and Fukushima Daiichi disaster begins. You evacuate, and then you attempt to continue your life, despite the fact that you are in post-traumatic stress. You may have lost everything that you own. And your health been irrevocably compromised by radiation, but Tepco considers you a slacker, and you've got to give that money back. Meanwhile, the rolling in money Tepco's Yakuza workforce tore a hole in the cover of the building housing the number one reactor. The triangular-shaped hole is about one meter wide and two meters long, and Tepco blamed it on a strong gust of wind. Gee, I thought the dog ate it, but wait, there's more. Mountains of discarded suits designed to protect workers from radiation at Fukushima are piling up as low-level radioactive waste. That's right. By the end of September, thirty-three thousand three hundred cubic meters of discarded Tyvek suits were stored on the plant's premises, enough to fill about seventy twenty-five meter swimming pools. So what's Tepco planning to do about it? They want to start burning the discarded suits at an incineration facility next autumn, thus scattering the dust and ashes of radioactive materials all through the land. But they won't be able to start that level of pollution for another year, and until then, the company has no immediate solution to the problem of waste being produced as an offshoot of work to deal with the mounting volumes of radioactive water, which is another form of waste, which is the one thing that the nuclear industry is guaranteed to produce at all times: waste, radioactive waste. The Japanese government's not doing much better either. 
$30 billion in funding for roads, bridges, and thousands of new homes in areas devastated by the tsunami, earthquake, and nuclear accident at Fukushima Daiichi is still languishing unspent in the bank. As a result, tens of thousands of evacuees live stranded in so-called temporary units that were supposed to house them for no more than two years, but are now in their fourth year living there. A labor shortage exacerbated by the siphoning of workers away from the disaster zone to build Dig it. Commercial facilities for the totally wrong-headed 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games has slowed reconstruction. But if you think that's the height of idiocy, here's... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that sound awake. Thanks to GG Press for this example of nuclear wacka-wacka in the brain. Radioactive soil, currently stored at schools in Fukushima Prefecture, is not supposed to be transferred to radioactive waste storage facilities planned to be built near the crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant. Why, you may ask? Well, that's because decontamination at schools was carried out before a special law on radioactive contamination took effect in January of 2012, and thus The Japanese Environment Ministry, in all of its wisdom, that's in quotes, deems tainted soil collected during the work not covered by the law. It's not that it's not radioactive. It's just not radioactive and collected on the right timeline, according to the bureaucrats. The Fukushima prefectural government is arguing that such discrimination is pointless, They've also repeatedly called on the Environment Ministry to create a system that will allow soil contaminated with fallout from the March 2011 nuclear calamity at the power plant to be shipped from schools to the planned interim storage facilities. A senior Fukushima municipal official said, We want the state government to prepare an environment where children can study safely. Makes sense, right? But... The ministry has not given a clear response. Their reasons may be partly due to concerns not over people, not over the environment, but over the cost of shipping soil to the facilities to store it before being finally disposed of at other locations. Kicking the can down the road does cost money. And that cost is to be borne eventually by the plant's operator, Tokyo Electric Power Company, which has just posted record profits of $2.23 billion in the first half of fiscal 2015. A senior ministry official has said that it may be unfair to discriminate between radioactive soil collected before and after the law's effectuation. Ya think? This past August, the Fukushima prefectural government decided to accept the construction of temporary storage facilities around the nuclear plant. Hoping to begin radioactive waste shipments to these facilities in January, the central government is working to win the consent of landowners on the construction. And, of course, these landowners are saying the polite Japanese equivalent of, You must be out of your frickin' minds! All that waste and nowhere to put it. The story of nuclear.
And that's why, Environment Ministry of Japan, you, yes you, are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's of the week. Tis the season to get litigious. In the U.S., nine environmental defense groups and the Natural Resources Defense Council filed separate lawsuits in the D.C. Court of Appeals challenging the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission decision to proceed with an extended waste storage rule and a generic environmental impact statement that failed to comply with a 2012 federal court ruling that had previously reversed the NRC. The earlier lawsuit resulted in the suspension of all U.S. reactor licensing and relicensing decisions until the NRC completed a study of the environmental impacts of the longstanding failure to cite a repository for disposal of spent reactor fuel. This new suit, filed on October 29th, charges that the NRC had failed to meet federal safety and environmental requirements and failed to comply with the court's decision. On the exact same issue, Three U.S. states have launched a legal challenge to the NRC's recently approved final rule on storage of used nuclear fuel after reactors have closed. The petition filed on behalf of the states of New York, Vermont, and Connecticut alleges that the waste quote-unquote confidence rule violates federal environmental legislation. In Washington state, three environmental groups are suing a state agency over impacts of the Northwest-only commercial nuclear power plant on the water quality of the Columbia River. Northwest Environmental Defense Center, Northwest Environmental Advocates, and Columbia Riverkeeper filed the lawsuit on Thursday, October 30th against the Washington Energy Facility Site Evaluation Council, which issued the water pollution permit for Energy Northwest's Columbia Generating Station, which is located on the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. And the lying pro-nuclear report by the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, or UNSCIR, is being challenged by Human Rights Now, along with 40 civil society organizations from Japan, the U.S., Tunisia, Azerbaijan, the Netherlands, Germany, France, and Ireland which are asking that UNSCIR and the General Assembly Fourth Committee revise its report and its finding from a human rights perspective. Now for the NRC duck (coughs) and cover report. Massive waves in Lake Michigan forced the Cook Nuclear Generating Station in Bridgman, Michigan to shut down as excessive debris from large lake swells began to overburden and eventually damage several of the traveling water screens that removed debris from the cooling water intake tunnels. It happened on November 1st, meaning right after Halloween. Night on Bald Mountain, anyone? (coughs) Again on Halloween, the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant in California experienced a loss of off-site power source. The startup power source is the off-site power system designed to be immediately available following an accident. (coughs) And at North Anna in Virginia... Two nuclear fuel rods were found damaged during refueling. It is believed that about 15 uranium fuel pellets came out of the two rods and entered the reactor cooling system. According to David A. Heacock, President and Chief Nuclear Officer of Dominion Nuclear, it seems that in the last 18 months, a jet of water through a millimeter-sized hole in the fuel rod's support structure was squirting over the rods. That flow started them spinning and vibrating, a problem called baffle jetting, which has occurred at other nuclear reactors. The rods rubbed against the support structure, cutting grooves in them and eventually causing their tops to crack off. 
According to Bob Alvarez, senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, there are several concerns about this situation. If the irradiated fuel cladding is compromised, fission products in the fuel can dissolve in the pool water and contaminate the pool to hazardous radiation levels. Uranium exposed to water from compromised cladding generates hydrides and can easily ignite in the presence of oxygen. There's a risk of criticality. And remember, in 2011, North Anna was hit with an earthquake beyond design basis. I wonder if that had anything to do with this problem. (laughs) And in a Canadian atomic shell game, Atomic Energy of Canada Limited launched a wholly owned subsidiary named Canadian Nuclear Laboratories to adopt a government-owned, contractor-operated contract model and will involve the transfer of five nuclear licenses. According to Nuclear Hot Seat Canadian correspondent Ray Masalis, this may be like a second-party contracting to limit liability. We'll have the interview with the two attorneys from the USS Ronald Reagan lawsuit in just a moment. But first, Nuclear Hot Seat relies on your donations to keep us going and growing and doing what we do. I have tremendous gratitude to those of you who donate when, how often, and as much as you can. You can make a single donation, a small recurring payment, or put us on your year-end gift-giving list. Dear Santa... If you find that Nuclear Hot Seat helps you understand the nuclear issues, maybe makes you laugh, certainly makes you think, and helps you not feel so isolated with your understanding of the issues, help us keep doing it. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down on the homepage, and click on the big red Donate button. Know that whatever you can do to help, you're helping keep the show alive, and for that, I thank you. This week, we have that formerly rare but increasingly frequent experience within the anti-nuclear movement, the chance to celebrate a big win with the people who brought it about. Last Wednesday, October 29, we passed a major benchmark in the lawsuit of the USS Ronald Reagan sailors against Tokyo Electric Power Company, and I had the opportunity to interview attorneys Paul Garner and Charles Bonner, who made that happen. Hear what they have to say about the issues of the case, their perceptions of how they viewed the judge's action in the courtroom during the hearings, how they reacted when they got the good news, and what's next on behalf of the Reagan's 5,500 sailors, as well as all U.S. military personnel who responded after the March 11, 2011 earthquake, tsunami, and the start of the nuclear disaster at Fukushima. We start with Charles Bonner and are joined by Paul Garner. First of all, congratulations to you all for having successfully passed this milestone in the lawsuit on behalf of the sailors of the USS Ronald Reagan. Well, thank you. Thank you, Libby. You were very much a part of our win, uh, both from your studious and tenacious reporting on the case, which helped to spread the word uh, throughout the world about the importance of this case, and also your presence in court during the argument, I think, was a major positive factor. Uh, The court could see how many people were concerned, along with the sailors themselves, the plaintiffs. But, you know, I think you were a major factor in our victory. Well, thank you so much, Charles. That's very kind. 
To bring the listeners up to date, briefly sketch the background of the court case and the nature of the two hearings that were held before U.S. District Court Judge Janice Sammartino. First of all, this is a case, a class action case involving some uh, 223 U.S. sailors. That many? I didn't know the number had grown that high. Yeah, we represent 223 United States sailors in addition to their spouses, uh, along with a total of 70,000 Americans who were irradiated during the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster on February 11th, 2011. The lawsuit grew initially from only uh, 12 sailors, and we filed it back in December of 2012. And TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, has been attempting to get the case dismissed ever since. So they first filed the motion uh, to dismiss the case based on the theory that the court did not have subject matter jurisdiction. They could not, the court could not hear this case because the Navy had intentionally, through the executive power of the president, sent the ship led by the USS Ronald Reagan into harm's way. And therefore, the court, as one of the three branches of our government, could not second-guess a decision by the executive branch of the government, the President of the United States, when Obama dispatched the Seventh Fleet, led by the USS Ronald Reagan, to go to Fukushima to provide humanitarian aid to the people there who were uh, essentially uh, by the, uh, the aftermath of the earthquake and the tsunami. We uh, essentially were thrown out of court. The judge, in the initial argument, bought Tepco's argument, and we, in that hearing, which was in this last year, June of last year, I believe, we convinced her that she was incorrect and that we could amend the complaint, amend the lawsuit in such a way that the case would be able to go forward without there being any potential conflict between the executive branch and the judiciary branch. Well, we did amend the complaint, and TEPCO again filed a second motion to dismiss our lawsuit. And uh, during the interim, between the time the second dismissal was going to be heard, we filed our opposition. During the time we were waiting for the court to have a hearing, uh, we then filed a motion ourselves to bring in four additional defendants, uh, defendants General Electric, the Basco, those two American corporations built these six boiling water reactors, which are really six boiling water bombs, a nuclear bomb, uh, along with uh, Toshiba and Hitachi. Those four corporations were involved in both design and the constructions of these six reactors at the Fukushima power plant. We filed this motion, and so then the court took both motions under consideration, and uh, Libby, you were there when we argued the motion, and probably recall when the judge first took the bench, the court limits act, she outlined her tentative ruling, and she ruled against us in every aspect of the case, every claim we had presented to her. 
you're right, Charles. I was in court for the first of the two hearings. And I must say, both from what the judge said at the beginning and also watching her body language and bearing throughout, where she was leaning into the TEPCO attorneys and kind of backing away from what uh, you and Paul were saying, that when that hearing was over, we were not exactly an optimistic bunch when we left the courtroom. Paul, welcome onto the call. Oh, thank you for having me. I just want to thank you for the opportunity to converse. I had a little bit of confusion in the references to the different hearings that were held. To keep the information consistent with the way the lawyers refer to it, the first hearing was the initial filing they held that the judge dismissed, but they argued their way into a second hearing. The second hearing was the one that I attended back in August of this year when TEPCO was trying to get their case knocked down. The third hearing, which you will hear about, is the one that took place on September 25th of this year, which proposed adding four more defendants to the claim along with TEPCO. You'll hear more about that in a moment. Here's attorney Paul Garner with some additional perspective on the hearing that took place on August 25th. We filed... Uh, originally a complaint on 12-21-12 on behalf of eight uh, sailors plus a, a, a newborn infant. And then TEPCO moved to dismiss based upon what Charles had discussed with you, non-justiciability and form non-convenience. And the judge initially ruled to dismiss the case at that time during oral argument, but we turned her around and she gave us another opportunity to replead our claim. So as Charles described, we replead without any assertions of what the military may or may not have done and, and made our focus on what TEPCO did or did not do along with the other co-creators of these uh, power plants that formed Fukushima Daiichi. So some corporations were involved in one or the other. So the problem is we appeared last August 25th, and prior to our appearance, we had filed a proposed third amended complaint to name General Electric, Hitachi, Abasco, and Toshiba. And that was not before the court on August 25th. That was supposed to be heard on September 25th. The court heard our argument, and as Charles described, she initially, before hearing our argument, she issued a tentative ruling, again dismissing the case and sending us out the door. As you probably recall, during the hearing, the judge left the bench and went in and had a powwow with her legal eagles because Dan Collins of the defense team representing the power plant told her that if she dismissed, it would have serious consequences for all of these cases. All these people would essentially be non-suited. They wouldn't be able to go anywhere else. So she came back onto the bench. We introduced Steve Simmons to the court, and the court had a change of mind, and she took both our motion, which was scheduled for September 25th, to add the additional named defendants, and TEPCO's motions, second motion to dismiss, under advisement. And she just issued her ruling on both motions this past Tuesday. 
Paul, objectively speaking, how did it look for the sailors and the case after that hearing and also after the hearing on September 25th when you asked to add the other defendants? I felt that given the fact that the judge had listened so attentively uh, that she was going to take her time to reanalyze things. And she told us she would go back and, and look at our motion papers to add the name defendants. And, and I think that that was her real first opportunity to see the uh, devil in the details, so to speak. And what did that information about the named plaintiffs have? Was it just their name and rank, or did it include any of the details about what they had been going through? It included details and declarations from many of these victims who were suffering from leukemias and thyroid cancers and bleeding and other serious maladies, and from second generation as well, on behalf of the Dodson, Jason. Dodson, who was born after the fact, but his father participated in the operation, and he conceived a child with his wife, and there's no family history, and the baby was born with brain cancer and spine cancer, and is now blind in both eyes, and has undergone a stem cell attempt in Philadelphia to no avail, but now the scientists at Harvard have come out and said they can actually cure brain cancer. So if funding could be found to help these individuals, you don't have any coverage per se. They're not covered uh, by any kind of military medical insurance. It would have to be shown to be have caused by the very thing that we believe caused it. So it's kind of a, a catch-22, if you will. And we also have Theodore Holcomb, as you know, who passed away last April. So we have our first death from a very rare form of cancer. At age 38, you don't expect to get this type of cancer that attacks that's inoperable and, and is incurable. And he left a five-year-old child daughter, Mackenzie. So knowing the weight and the importance of this case to so many individuals, how did it look? Coming out of that courtroom, what were your thoughts and what were your fears about what was going to happen with the judge? My thoughts were positive, that she had listened to us. She had carefully considered things. And first and foremost, she considered a live, breathing human being sitting in a wheelchair in front of her. And it put a face on the name and all these other names. And that was the turning point, having Steve Simmons agree to come in from Utah at great expense and at great travail and with some degree of difficulty and showing up exactly at the start of the hearing so that he could be introduced to Judge Janice Sammartino. That turned the whole thing around, coupled with the admission by TEPCO's lawyers that we would have no other place to go coupled with the fact that the Reagan is in Coronado and it generates millions of dollars in revenue for the city. And these are all U.S. citizens who were injured through no fault of their own on a humanitarian mission. Which of you gentlemen found out first that the judge had issued her ruling? And how did you learn this? Through what form? And what was your response? I received the order first because I... I am on the court's paper system. So is Paul. Apparently he was having a glitch, but 
I received the order. My son and I are partners, and we looked at the order. My son called me in and said, wow, we have the order, and we started reading it, and we go, wow, we, we've won. Uh, <laughs> How surprising with anything dealing with nuclear that our side wins. Yes, exactly. Uh, it was wonderful news, astounding and shocking in many respects, but actually it was not surprising because, as I told you in my interview with you in front of the courtroom, uh, I truly expected her to rule in this fashion because the force of the law and the power of the fact compelled this conclusion. The first argument, she really got stuck on this lack of subject matter jurisdiction issue, and then she just could not get past that. But we were able to, as you heard in the argument, point out to her that the Navy did not act unreasonable at all. TEPCO had argued that the Navy was a proximate cause and intervening and what they call superseding cause of the sailors' injuries because the Navy had decided to place the ship in harm's way. And we had pointed out through documents we had received through the Freedom of Information Act that the Navy discovered that radiation was 30 times higher than normal. And when they discovered that, contrary to the representations from TEPCO, which had lied about the levels of radiation releases, when the Navy discovered this uh, radiation being that high, they moved the ship from about approximately two miles of shore out to 50 nautical miles, which is about 75 regular miles. But even at 50 miles, they were taking on radiation much higher. So they moved the ship out a 100 nautical miles from shore. And at 100 nautical miles of shore, they were still taking on radiation 30 times higher than normal. And 30 times is not your regular 30 times. is almost a logarithmic progression. It's like times 10 at each multiple. And so this was extraordinary information that the court did not have in the first hearing. So she could see that the Navy acted reasonably. They were being given false information. And so once they realized, based on the reading device, radiation detective devices on this nuclear-powered ship, these devices are there to determine any kind of radiation release on this ship itself. The U.S. Ronald Reagan is powered through nuclear energy itself. And so they have these uh, devices, these Geiger kind of Geiger counters that can detect radiation releases. And so they did the right thing. They started running away. They started literally running for their lives. And they were caught failing for hours in these plumes. And so the court stated in her order that contrary to TEPCO's argument that the Navy had been a intervening, a superseding intervening cause and that Navy had acted some kind of way unreasonably, she found that, no, the Navy had indeed acted reasonable and that it was quite foreseeable that once TEPCO engaged in negligent conduct, such as failing to maintain its nuclear plants adequately from the inception from the 60s up until now, they've had over 15 nuclear accidents at that site, that it was foreseeable that someone, and it was foreseeable that the Navy would come to the rescue. Because when people get trapped in peril, it is very natural for us human beings to go to the rescue. And, of course, the United States Navy is one of the first responders uh, for world disasters. And so the court ruled, and she wrote in her order, that it was quite foreseeable that 
once TEPCO put the whole public, the whole world in peril that it was foreseeable that the Navy would go in and rescue them. And so the Navy's intervention was not a superseding cause. It was not an unforeseeable event, and therefore TEPCO was liable, and that this case can be decided on strictly tort principles, principles dealing with negligence and strict liability based on ultra-hazardous activity, and did not involve any invasion of the executive branch of the government. In other words, President Obama's decision to dispatch the Seventh Fleet to provide humanitarian aid to the victims of this Fukushima disaster, mainly the earthquake and the tsunami. When you got the information, when your son caught this, what was it, an email that came out, the notification? Yes, it comes through the court's email system, yes. When you got that and you got the news and it hit, what was your response and then what did you do? Well, my response was, my son and I both, we related that we immediately called Paul and told him that, one, we had one, the motion against TEPCO, that is TEPCO trying to throw us out of court. And secondly, we had won our motion to amend our second amended complaint to bring in a third amended complaint to add defendants General Electric and Ibasco and Toshiba and Atachi. Uh, as Paul correctly said, General Electric designed and built these six boiling water reactors along with another American corporation called Ibasco. And Toshiba and Atachi were also involved in the construction and uh, the design. So the court granted our motion to bring these two, these four additional defendants in, in addition to granting us the right to go forward on all of our claims except a couple claims, which we didn't really need. Uh, and and uh, so we, we even have the claims for the spouses of these sailors, a claim for a long consortium. So we, we were elated that we had all of our major claims, negligence, based on engaging in ultra-hazardous activity, as well as uh, the loss of consortium claim, and that we were permitted to go forward with, uh, against GE to bring in claims for a design defect and manufacturing defect, because the evidence shows that the oil and water react were defective from the inception. They were, several of the engineers resigned during the construction of these uh, boiling water reactors and told GE that they were dangerous. And when GE then uh, sought permission from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission back in 72 to start the operation of these boiling water reactors, uh, various engineers protested and said these reactors are dangerous, these containers are not built to withstand any kind of an accident, and it shouldn't be put in operation. The important point is that GE built these six bombs in 1965. They lit the fuse in 1972. There was a protest where they were told that these were dangerous. They went to the regulatory commission, the atomic regulatory commission, and said, if you do not allow us to start these boiling water reactors, we will go out of business. This is like the first too big to fail company. General Electric would go out of business, they argued. And so they got permission to go forward. Meanwhile, the fuse burned up until March 11, 2011, and then exploded on the people in Japan. So we think that GE and these other corporations who built, designed, and constructed these boiling water reactors should then be also held responsible, along with KEPCO, 
for the injuries to the sailors. All of this speaks to where do we go from here on the case? What is the next step on behalf of these sailors and moving this lawsuit forward? Where do we go from here? Well, we will be filing the Third Amendment complaint at these four defendants then sometime before November 18th. The lawsuit is already drafted. The amended lawsuit is drafted. We will be refining it and tailoring it to fit the contours of this recent order from the judge. And then after we bring them in, we will then proceed with discovery, which means we'll be taking depositions and most importantly, focusing on medical research and medical care for these 70,000 United States service personnel, most of whom are sailors. We have now 24,000 sailors who responded in the 7th Fleet. That includes 5,500 sailors who were on the USS Ronald Reagan alone. So is the lawsuit now expanding to be able to cover all of the military personnel who were exposed as opposed to just the 5,500 on the Reagan? Yes, yes. We're expanding it to include all 70,000 servicemen and women who were either stationed there or were part of the first response team to go in. And that includes the 24,000 sailors as well as the 5,500 who were aboard the USS Ronald Reagan. And we have 223 signed-up named plaintiffs in the existing lawsuit. These are people who have existing major injuries, such as leukemia and, and uh, cancers of all sorts, thyroid cancers, particular cancers, breast cancers, uterine cancers. And so the, these young 20-year-olds, 23-year-olds, 25-year-olds, 35-year-olds, in the case of Lieutenant Steve Simmons, who was hiking the mountains of Hawaii a year before he was dispatched to Operation Tamadachi there in Japan. Now he's confined to a wheelchair. So our main focus now is going to be sailors first. How do we get medical help? How do we get the necessary funding to deal with not only the short-term medical needs of these sailors, but also the long-term medical needs of the sailors themselves as well as their offspring? Because we know this kind of radiation causes major DNA damage, it causes a birth defect, and it, it causes an accelerated, aggressive thyroid cancer. And so these sailors are at great risk. They, they also injured just from the fear of contracting cancer. Um, so that's our main focus now is how do we deal with the medical health, and then we'll prepare for a trial in San Diego if need be. We're preparing for trial right now. Approximately how long do you estimate from the time of filing would it take for this to go to trial? We will file the Second Amendment complaint, as I mentioned, no later than November 18th. The answers will be in on about 60 days, the answer to that complaint, and we will hope to get the trial within anywhere from 18 months to two years after that. Hopefully we can get a resolution before that where uh, we can get the parties together and come up with a way to fund the medical research that, and the medical treatment that's going to be necessary to address the medical needs of these 70,000 U.S. service men and women. What are you currently asking for in the lawsuit to create this fund, as I understand it, for the ongoing treatment of all of the sailors and the other personnel? 
We have filed a $1 billion lawsuit against TEPCO. We now will be adding four additional defendants, and we will be asking some additional amounts from those defendants as well, because, again, these are problems, these are illnesses and medical conditions that will carry on to the offspring of these sailors. It won't just stop with these sailors. We already represent kids who have been born with birth defects as a result of their parents being exposed. So the question is how much is the lives and health of these sailors worth who went over just to provide humanitarian aid. They were not going into combat, nor were they going to fight radiation releases. They were going rather to provide water and blankets and food and to rescue people out of water. And uh, uh, Tokyo Electric Power Company literally lied and concealed that they had three nuclear reactors that were in, were in active meltdown phases. That is, they were releasing radiation into the air. They were dumping 300 tons of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean, and these sailors were using this water, taking out the salt. They have a desalination plant on the ship, and they were taking the salt out and using the water to brush their teeth and bathe and cook their food. So in addition to breathing the air and ingesting the food, the radiation was all over the ship, and they, they were sailing plumes for hours and hours. And then they stayed on the ship until the end of the year, and the ship was totally contaminated. So we have sailors who've been literally marinated in radiation. And so it's no coincidence now that they're all developing leukemias and thyroid cancers and other various irradiation-related illnesses. Uh, it's a billion-dollar-plus lawsuit. But that's what it's going to take to address the medical needs of these sailors and their families. How have the sailors responded to the news that you got what you were asking for and that the case is moving forward? They are absolutely elated. They've been emailing, thank God, you know, finally, you know, someone understands. I was just this morning on a telephone call with Steve Simmons. He's the lieutenant who was hiking the hills of Hawaii a year before. Now he's confined to a wheelchair. He's, he was there in court, as you well know, Libby. And he is extremely relieved because he's now, um, he's a whole different person. You know, he suffers extreme uh, seizures and he can't move, he can't take care of himself. And the doctors uh, are at a loss of what happened to him other than the fact that he was exposed to high doses of radiation uh, during Operation Tomodachi. And so all the sailors are just delighted that this case is now forward. After two years, we've been literally fighting Tepco for two years. Tepco is a multi-trillion dollar corporation, and uh, we just three little lawyers here, my son and me and Paul. I always like to point out that in a David and Goliath battle such as ours, David won. Yes, absolutely. And not only are we fighting Goliath, we're fighting a thick pack of Goliath. And we've got a whole gang of us. Uh, but that's okay. We also have rights on our side, and we have the law on our side. How about the media? Has your phone been ringing off the hook with reporters dying to call you and get a quote that they can use on the news? Yes, we have been getting quite a bit of media attention all over the world. At uh, the Spiegel, Germany, we've had English uh, media contact us. I'm on the phone this morning with CBS. And so the word is getting out gradually. But you are the person living in your 
broadcast that really generated the, the publicity on this case from its inception. You really have done the best job at spreading the word about this case when everyone thought that we would never succeed with going forward in this lawsuit. They all thought the case was going to stay out of court because of the way the court had dismissed us in the first instance. But we knew we would survive because we know we knew what the law says and we know what the facts are. Well, I was honored to be able to help because that's what I do and that's what's so needed. What can we in the anti-nuclear movement continue to do to be helpful and supportive to the sailors and to the case and to you and Paul as the attorneys? What we need is for people to put the sailors first, to do whatever they can do in their own local sphere of influence to bring awareness that these sailors need medical attention. They need funds to uh, address and do the research and provide the treatment for their medical needs. They also need funds, of course, to fight the gang of Goliath. We need them to contact their congressmen, their senators, their local representatives, including Obama, and let Obama know to put pressure on Japan that uh, Japan's which is now the major shareholder of Tokyo Electric Power Company. The government of Japan essentially took over this for-profit billion-dollar corporation. And so we need our government now to put pressure on Japan to make sure this case goes to a mediation and that there is some special master appointed to oversee these cases and make sure these cases are dealt with fairly. That will happen with people calling to their government and making sure their government steps up to the plate and making sure that Obama steps up to the plate and put pressure on Japan so that Japan can stop fighting this case and start doing the morally right thing, which is figuring out how to fund the medical needs of these sailors. So that's what we need. That's, that is the call to action. Everybody who's listening to this... Get going. Contact your Congress people. Write to the White House. Do what you can to bring attention, and especially if you are a veteran and you are in touch with a veterans group, you are the people who have the loudest voice and the strongest voice and the most important voice, I feel, in bringing this up because this is no way to treat those men and women who have put their lives on the line for this country and are desperately in need of our help and support now. That was attorneys Charles Bonner and Paul Garner representing the sailors of the USS Ronald Reagan in their lawsuit for medical damages against Tokyo Electric Power Company, and as they move forwards, also General Electric, Ibasco, Toshiba, and Hitachi, the companies that designed and built the Fukushima nuclear reactors. If you want further information on the USS Reagan sailors and their lawsuit, it has been covered extensively on Nuclear Hot Seat. You can catch up with the information by checking out our exclusive interviews on episodes number 159, 162, 166, and an allied interview about the Japanese protest against the home porting of the USS Reagan in Japan as of 2015 on episode number 173. And if you liked this or any of the earlier interviews on the USS Reagan case, a small donation to Nuclear Hot Seat is appreciated.
While you're at it, check out my ebook, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. It's the harrowing first-person story of moi getting stuck one mile away from that nuclear reactor as the accident happened. Let's just say I knew a lot less then than I know now. It is available on Amazon Kindle, and by purchasing it, you will not only get a great read, you'll be helping support the work of this show, for which I thank you. Activist shout-outs. Thanks again this week to Deun Renard of Rainbow Warriors, my favorite anti-nuclear fox, who continues to do an outstanding job of researching and posting articles on all aspects of the nuclear issue. If you have not yet joined Rainbow Warriors on Facebook, I strongly suggest you do so. And then join Nuclear Hot Seat. We'll welcome you. A big nod to Canadian Special Correspondent Ray Masalis, who forwarded information on the Canadian regulatory shell game. And to Erica Gray and Bob Alvarez for helping me understand the technical problems at North Anna. John Stewart! You know, I'm thinking of going after John Oliver for nuclear coverage in addition to what I shout out to you every week. I love the way he provides context and some real journalistic research as well as his immigrants' sense of outrage that America is not acting like, well, America. Come on, John and John, compete for the best possible snarky nuclear stories on your shows. Lots to choose from, plenty of outrage to go around. And if you need help, I'm here for you. Here's today's final thought. I am on a semantic rip and tear against the word decommissioning when referring to Fukushima Daiichi. Why? Here's the dictionary's definition of decommission. Withdraw someone or something from service. Make something, such as a nuclear reactor or weapon, inoperative and dismantle and decontaminate it to make it safe. It also means to take a ship out of service. Look, what is happening in Japan is not taking the nuclear reactors out of commission. They are not in commission, and they have not been since March 11, 2011. You cannot decommission that which is already destroyed. What they're doing in Japan is attempting to mitigate a disaster. With the kind of results we report on here each week on Nuclear Hot Seat, most spectacularly in Numbnuts of the Week. TEPCO is not making the nuclear reactors inoperative. Those suckers have been melting down for over three and a half years. The earthquake made them inoperative. And no one is dismantling or decontaminating Fukushima Daiichi. They're pretending to do so while creating additional mountains of radioactive waste spreading radioactivity through planned incineration of contaminated materials, stockpiling contaminated materials in various out-of-the-way locations they hope nobody will notice, and their unplanned but never-ending radioactive water leaks that are, oh yes, destroying the Pacific Ocean and that which lives within it. Nothing is being made safe except the profits of TEPCO, which are an obscene 2.23% billion dollars for just the first half of this fiscal year. 
even as nuclear refugees from Fukushima are freezing in so-called temporary housing that was supposed to be used for no more than two years and is now closing in on its fourth winter. And TEPCO is dunning students by demanding return of their disaster compensation for daring to have made plans to leave Fukushima for college before the disaster happened, and then following through in the months after their lives were upended by the nuclear disaster. This is bizarro world. Remember Superman? Bizarro world. It's through a glass darkly. The inmates are in charge of the asylum while telling all the sane people that we're the nutters. So I ask this movement, its journalists, its supporters, please do not give TEPCO and Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and their Yakuza stooges who run the supposed cleanup of that which cannot be named cleaned up the dignity and excuse of referring to what they do as decommissioning. Ass-covering? Yes. Lying? Absolutely. Greedy manipulation, threatening, bullying, sociopathic sadism, and a total lack of human empathy? Yes, beyond a shadow of a doubt. But decommissioning? Let's retire that poor, beleaguered word, along with the nuclear industry's other semantic favorites. Significant as in not significant when referring to any levels of radiation, and confidence, as in waste confidence, when dealing with the NRC's handling of nuclear waste. When it comes to Fukushima and decommissioning, as that wise sage Bullwinkle of Rocky Ann once said of Army intelligence, that's a contradiction of terms. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 4th, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, Arnie Gunderson and Fairwinds Energy Education, Radio Ecoshock, Japan Times, Mainichi, Trust.org, Reuters, Fukushima Diary and our friend Iori Mochizuki, YakimaHerald.com, KUOW.org, WSBT.com, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, American Chemical Society, Los Angeles CBS Local, hrn.or.jp, theguardian.com, focustaiwan.tw, those conscienceless PR hacks and flacks at World Nuclear News, and the never-ending, ever-wonderful Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community, which you are invited to join, friend on Facebook, and tweet to John Stewart about. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber. Looks like Weber, sounds like Weber. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV and is also available on AirProgressive.com. Our archive is available on iTunes. You can subscribe under podcasts. And you can also find our archive on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2014, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed to not-for-profit groups, blogs, and websites. You have my permission to reuse as long as proper attribution is provided. 
This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we have all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.